Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. For a good portion of my time in high school, I was in love with this one particular girl. Let's call her Mary. Mary was beautiful and smart. She didn't take shit from anyone. She was also possibly a compulsive liar, but that didn't really matter. I think that was part of her charm, you know, not knowing if some of the stuff coming out of her mouth was the actual truth. Boys were crazy about her, and she had no shortage of interested suitors, all taller and way more handsome than me. Therefore, I had never really given her much thought because, frankly, I didn't really think I had much of a chance. But during our junior year, we started being around one another quite a bit. We had physics together, and she had also grown close to my best friend Stacy during the previous summer. And then the three of us, along with my other best friend Chris and my good pal Mike, all got jobs at the recently opened party supply store in town. But on the day of Halloween, which was a Sunday that year, I was let go from that job. Mary wasn't working that day, and I remember calling her to let her know what had happened to me and to warn her that she might be losing her job as well. She asked if I wanted to come over, and of course I did. By the time I had gotten to her house, she had called the store and found out that she was also losing her job. We were both feeling pretty rejected. I remember being in her room just talking and her bringing up this house that she once lived in when her parents were still together. She mentioned having a videotape of footage from the old house, which she then located and put in the VCR for us to watch. The footage was of her as a little girl, probably around five or six, chasing some ducks in front of this big white house. But then the footage quickly changed to a Halloween party, probably from around the same time. And in it, her parents, dressed in their Halloween costumes, were passing around a joint. This really freaked her out. Her younger brother, who was kind of a juvenile delinquent, came in the room and was truly excited about what we had discovered. He tried to take the tape, and the two of them began to fight over it and scream at one another. After the fight had ended, upset and wanting to leave, Mary asked if we could go somewhere quiet to talk and suggested going to the soccer fields down the road. When we got there, it was completely empty. So we sat out there and talked, both doing our fair share of soul-bearing, and then eventually we kissed and made out for the rest of the night on the bleachers. It was one of the truly amazing moments of my young life at the time. I almost couldn't believe that it had actually happened. I remember the very next day in physics, her smiling at me from across the room. And then later that afternoon, her informing me that she did not have any feelings for me. And when we made out again on the soccer fields a couple weeks later, she let me know the next day that, again, she did not have any feelings for me. Similar events like this continued off and on for the rest of high school. I remember that she had this awful winding driveway that was really hard to back out of, especially in the dark. And us getting into some argument one night where I angrily backed out of the driveway and ended up hitting a tree. 
I was so embarrassed and thought, oh God, I hope she didn't hear that and know that she had won. But she wouldn't have to hear it to know. She knew I was her fool. Needless to say, this young fool spent a large amount of time listening to a lot of pop music and feeling less alone. And it was through this evocation of the shared experience, like so much great pop music, that once I was fortunate enough to find it, I really connected to the music of the nerves. Like a number of people, I'm sure, I first became aware of the existence of the nerves through Blondie's cover of Hanging on the Telephone, but I don't think I actually sought out the original until I happened to hear When You Find Out. It blew my mind, and then when I heard the original Hanging on the Telephone, well, it also blew my mind. I can still vividly picture myself listening to it for the first time in my bedroom of the house I was renting during my third year of college. I can remember wondering why I was just now hearing this band, and also really wanting to hear some more. So I decided to dive in. I sought out the Nerves' 1976 self-titled EP, put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hi, good afternoon everybody, or good morning, or good evening. My name is Paul Collins. I was the drummer in the Nerves, a band that formed in uh, San Francisco, California, circa 1974. I was uh, the youngest member of the band. I was just turned 18 when I went out to California to seek my fortune. And um, on the third day I was in San Francisco, I met Jack Lee, and, and the rest is, as they say, history. My name's Jack Lee. I was the guitar player and one of the singers and songwriters of a band named The Nurse. Born and raised in southeastern Alaska, Guitarist Jack Lee would spend much of his childhood dreaming of the day that he'd be able to leave. See, I was from a town called Sitka, which is in the lower part of it. It's a different part of Alaska. There's many different. It's kind of similar to, um, it's not similar to anything, really. It's just, you know, it was an island. <laughs> it's one of the the go-to places now for you know, it has been on these cruise cruise things. Now it's it's got that tourist town vibe. But when I was growing up and raised there, it was more like, you know, logging, fishing, that whole thing. For anybody that loves the outdoors life and uh, that whole experience, it's really the pinnacle. You know, there's nothing you can compare it to anywhere else in the world, let alone the United States. However, with me, it was kind of wasted on me because all I ever wanted to do was get out and come down to 
you know, what we used to call down south. Down south when is just anywhere besides Alaska. You know, my interest in rock and roll, and I was sort of formed from the the whole Beatles experience of when the band started coming over from England and and so on and so forth. That wasn't someplace where you could really realize that dream. So for me, here I am surrounded by a, an absolutely astonishing miracle of nature and this, that, and the other thing. And it kind of got wasted because uh, all I wanted to do was come down south and start playing, you know. My dad was a serious gambler, and he ran up such a large debt to organized crime. And at that time, in the 50s, people thought that they could escape whatever they were running from, whichever it might be, you know what I mean? And go up there. So that's how we kind of ended up there, as well as many of my friends and everything else. Everybody had a little story of why they had to get the fuck out. My dad had spent some time in the service. He went up there, and I just ended up getting born there. I shortly left there after I was born and didn't return until I was like five or six, you know. And then I spent most of my late childhood, early teenage years. But I dropped out of high school, you know what I mean? I left I left pretty early. So by the time I was, you know, in my late teens, I was, I was gone, you know, I was... I went down south and hitchhiked all over the United States and ended up in San Francisco. Lee would begin playing music at a young age, and it is through tragic circumstances that he would start his first band. First started when I was 13. What first started it was uh, my best friend killed himself. You know, it, it happened at the same time when I kind of wanted to see if I could start a band, and his mother was so heartbroken from the tragedy that she let us boys practice at her house i always say that the the best drummer or guitar player or any kind of musician is the person with the parent who allowed them to do it you know because to have some kid banging in the fucking thing it'll drive you motherfucking crazy it's the hardest thing of the whole experience of forming a band and doing that whole thing is a having a place to rehearse it sounds like oh no big deal it's everything it's on practically the only thing is hustling and finding an environment where you can even play where nobody's gonna fucking you know go bad shit and then the other thing is finding people to play with and it's uh it's key on the other side of the country, drummer Paul Collins would live the earliest years of his life in New York City before eventually moving with his family to spend a portion of his childhood overseas. It is while living abroad that Collins would fall in love with music. When I was about six years old, my mom took me and my, my brother and my two sisters and uh, she remarried a guy and she wanted to, this is like 1962, 63, and we went to Vietnam. We went to Saigon. I lived in Saigon for a year and a half. And then we moved to Greece for uh, almost four years. And then towards the end of that, I decided I wanted to go back and be with my dad. So I came back to New York City in like 1968, no, maybe 67. 
and I went to live with him for a year in Greenwich Village. And then at the end of that year, um, I wanted to go back to my family. My dad said no. So my mom said, okay. And she brought the family back from uh, Greece to Long Island, to Manasset, Long Island. I was there for a while. And then I wound up in Leonia, New Jersey, which is right over the George Washington Bridge. My earliest musical memory was in a taxi cab in Saigon. At that time in Saigon and Vietnam, the cabs were this very weird species of VW bugs, but they were actually smaller than the the typical VW bug. If you can imagine that, because the bug was pretty damn small, but they even had a special edition for, for Vietnam that was even smaller. And we were all crammed into this thing and it was raining. And I'll never forget this for as long as I live And the windshield wipers are flapping back and forth. And Big Girls Don't Cry comes on the radio and blows my mind. And that was it. That was all it took. And then I heard Lightning Strikes. And then I heard Hank Williams from my dad and Ray Charles. And then I was in, in Manhasset. I used to fall asleep every night with my little transistor radio glued to my head. And I would hear the golden years of rock and roll. And that was everything from the 50s, Elvis Presley, uh, Glenn Campbell, uh, Burt Bacharach, the Nashville sound, the Memphis sound, the California sound, the British invasion sound. I mean, it was just, it, that was, it was uh, my uh, beginning of my university of music. And um, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And I would just listen to that stuff and I would go, how did these guys do this? How do they do it? If I could d- do that, I would be so happy. Little did I know <laughs> that. Uh, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, as uh, ACDC said. But that was it. I just was hooked. I heard uh, AM radio. I heard Cousin Brucie, which was WABC here. The music just, it, it just, I mean, it just had this tremendous effect on me. It is through his love of music and the availability of certain items that Collins would eventually learn to play the drums. I started playing drums with pencils because that was easy. You didn't have to know anything. You just went tippity-tap, tappity-tap. And then I graduated to making my drum set, which was a foot-operated garbage can. You know, the garbage cans with the lid. That was my, that was kind of like my hi-hat or my bass drum or whatever. And then I had pots and pans. And then one year, I guess my mom and my stepdad figured, well, I guess this kid really likes music. So they bought me a Remo snare drum for Christmas which I broke the head in about 30 seconds. And then, you know, for the rest of the time, it was, you know, taped over and taped over and taped over with, uh, you know, masking tape. And that was my first drum set. So I would play in the garage and I would just, you know, sing the songs in my head and play those makeshift drum set. And my big fantasy was, this is like 1968, that I would be playing in the garage And the Beatles would drive by. Why they would be in Manhasset, Long Island, I have no idea. But they would drive by. And just coincidentally, you know, Ringo couldn't make the gig. He was sick or something. They would hear me and ask me to join the band. (laughs) So that gives you an idea of the delusional uh, framework that uh, was the basis of the rest of my life in music. Collins would eventually acquire a real drum set 
and after graduating from high school, he would further his interest in music by attending Juilliard. My mom one day, you know, I guess it was uh, in the summer, and I had graduated high school a year earlier. My mom was probably going, you know, what the hell am I going to do with this goddamn kid now? He's graduated school, and he thinks he's just going to hang around the house and eat us out of, you know, house and home and, uh, and do nothing. So she comes in one day, and she says, get dressed. I'm taking you into New York because Leonia was like, you know, 20 minutes from New York City. You're going to Juilliard. It's the last day of the auditions. You're going to audition. Take that tape you made because I had made a tape of experimental music to go along with uh, my mother's uh, an artist, very good artist. And she does a lot of uh, abstract work. She had taken clear plastic slides, you know, the kind of slides you put in a carousel. And she had painted oil paint on them. So when you blew them up, they were like, you know, really trippy, wild, crazy stuff. I mean, she wasn't painting pictures. She was just putting oil paint onto clear plastic slides. So when the light went through them and they were put up on a screen, they were like, you know, out of this world, kind of like really trippy stuff. So I made this tape to go along with it. And it was, we called the show The Elements. And we, we actually played it at my school and she had played it at some of the galleries that she worked with. And, and it, was, it was very, very cool. So I had experimented with, I had uh, a drum set, uh, uh, an organ, I had a synthesizer through this band that I was in. I had all this stuff and I played flute and I played um, piano. So I had made this like very avant-garde abstract tape of me just, you know, screwing around with all this shit. So she said, take that tape and I'm taking you into Juilliard. Apply for something. (laughs) So I applied for a, a composition major. I mean, the whole thing is just, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it, when we make the movie. So I go in there. This is, Juilliard is the most prestigious or one of the most prestigious schools of music in the world. People, you know, train and study and practice 12 hours a day and the auditions are rigorous. And so you have all these kids there that, you know, study music and sight read it and know everything there is to know about classical music and whatever and their instrument. And I waltz in and I go, you know, I want to be a composition major. The only way they could determine whether anybody had any merit as a composer was to have the head of the composition department review their work because they didn't know shit about composition. They knew how to play. But, you know, composing, that's a whole different ballgame. So they say, well, go over to the head of the composition department. He lives on 69th Street. He's there. Go to him. Bring him your tape. See what he says. So I do that. The guy listens to the tape. And he goes, yeah, I'll take you on as a student. Same day. This is a school that people wait year or a whole year. They audition. They wait a year, maybe a year and a half to find out if they've been accepted. I get accepted the same day. While Collins was still on the East Coast, Jack Lee had already made his way to San Francisco. And it was during his earliest years there that he had taken his first steps in becoming a songwriter. When I first started, I played in bands. We'd have local dances. We made good money, and and then later I played in the roadhouse. You know, from ten o'clock at night till five o'clock in the morning. That was over the the city limits, so they could stay open till five o'clock. But you know, playing Credence and this out and the other thing. You know, just playing covers. And then I sort of lost interest in rock and roll. Got interested in jazz, just jazz guitar. I don't know why. 
anyway, and I was never really a great player, you know, to be truthful. So this awkward period of when I came down south and I started hitchhiking and I didn't couldn't drag a guitar around, this, that, and the other thing, my chops just went to zero. I couldn't play anything. And when I ended up in San Francisco, I happened across a biography of Bob Dylan at the time. And when I read it, I just realized that the minute that you start playing your own material, it, it's a whole another serious exercise. Anybody that's been in bands and so on, you know, you can only go so far playing covers. But by the time I got to San Francisco, there was a, a street musician scene happening. And so the combination of the two, I all of a sudden had the epiphany that I just, there, there was just no way that I was bringing anything to the table just as a musician or as a guy in a band that was going to get me anywhere. I just realized that if you write your own songs, who's going to tell you you're playing them badly? What are they comparing it to? If it's your song, it's whatever it is, that's about as good as it's going to get, you know? And so you, there's that opportunity. Ah, that's where that's where maybe I could contribute something, you know? And so once that became a very important goal, my only goal was to write a song. That's when I wrote Hang on the Telephone. Hang on the Telephone was the first song I wrote. Back in New York, Collins would grow disenchanted with Juilliard and through the encouragement of his drum teacher, decides to relocate to the West Coast. So 74, what happened was I was living in New York in my little uh, my little railroad apartment for 100 bucks a month, and I was doing all these drum auditions, and all the bands were like, you know, uh, jazz fusion or prog rock or, you know, hippie shit. Chuck Berry, the Everly Brothers, all that stuff is like, nobody's touching that with the 10-foot pole now. No one is playing songs. No one is singing. No, there's no harmonies. It's a... That's all gone. It's all like, you know, jamming and guitar solos. And, you know, maybe there's a lead singer singing something, but nobody's really paying any attention anyway. So this girl from my high school calls me up and she's going to Lake Tahoe. And she says, look, I, I'm, I'm driving out to California. Do you want to come and share the driving with me and share the gas? You know, that was a, that was a very common thing back in the day. Like people were traveling, they, they'd take on somebody to help them pay the gas and share the driving and stuff like that. So I said, you betcha. And not only that, she was a girl. So I was like, okay, <laughs> say no more. And uh, we, so we drove out and she, and she was going to see this guy. You know, that was the bummer of the whole thing. She was heading to go see this guy in Lake Tahoe. So I said, ah, shit. So we get to Tahoe and I'm like, oh, I'm out of here. And that's when a guy got scared. Because I was like, okay, she leaves me on Route 80. And now I'm really on my own. I've got 80 bucks, I'm hitchhiking, and I don't even know where the fuck I'm going. I just want to go to San Francisco at this point, because I'm on Route 80. And I go, I hope I make it, and I did. Not long after arriving in San Francisco, Collins would meet Lee, who in turn would introduce him to Buffalo, New York native Peter Case. What happened was there was this girl... There's a lot of girls in the story. There's always girls in the story if you're talking to a rock and roll musician. There's got to be a girl. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, you would have you would become a doctor. <laughs> so, um, this girl that uh, well, girl, really a woman. She was much older than me. 
but I had had a crush on her. She had lived where my father lived in Connecticut. And when she was living there, when I'd see my father, I had, I had this big crush on her, but she was living with this guy, you know, stuff you do when you're kids. And so she's now living in, in San Francisco. She's my one number. I said, well, I'm going to call Patricia up. You know, hopefully Patricia will be single and dying to see me, <laughs> which was not the case. She was dating a car salesman and she was into theology. I was like, oh, shoot, man, this is never going to happen. So anyway, she says, yeah, you can stay on the couch for a couple of days. And I go, a couple of days, man, I got to get my shit together because I don't got any money. I don't know anybody but her. And I don't know, you know, I've, I don't know what's going to happen. It was my first experience in, in California, which is totally, totally different than New York. In the 70s, New York was filthy and funky. And, you know, nobody I knew had a big apartment. They were all like, you know, crapola houses and uh, apartments and stuff and walk-ups and this, that, and the other thing. Everybody was broke. Everything was falling apart. Everything needed to be redone. Not like today, but you know what I mean? So it, it like, you know, it's just soot and dirt everywhere. So I get to this place and it's this big. I mean, I'd never seen a house so big. It, you know how those big houses are in, in San Francisco. It's on Russian Hill. It's this enormous house. It looks like a freaking castle to me. I mean, there must have been 15 bedrooms in it or whatever. So it's this big house, and she's living there with a whole ton of people. And so they say, on the third day, they say, you know what? We're all going away. They were all going somewhere. I don't know where they were going. Would you mind hanging out and just taking care of the place for us? I go, no problem. <laughs> you know. So I, I wind up being alone in this huge mansion. Anyway, so on the third day, I went to Don Wears Music City, which was the cool music store in San Francisco on Columbus Avenue. And I mean, it's just all too perfect. Uh, their motto, emblazoned in big gold script on their door, when you're ready. When you're ready, you go to Don Weir's. And I see that and I go, I am very ready, but I have no idea for what. <laughs> so, uh, so there's a little three by five index card on the, um, you know, the bulletin board. In amongst, you know, wanted drummer for disco band, must have jumpsuit, wanted, you know, drummer for heavy metal band, must have car and three amps. You know, and all these like really fancy ads that are, you know, mimeographed or printed out. And I see this little index card with blue ballpoint ink, big, big ballpoint ink written, wanted drummer for all original band, a la the Beatles and the Stones, call Jack. I go, that's me. And so I take the ad down because I don't want anybody else to see it. And I go out and I call him and he tells me to come over. And, and really, it was like that whole part was kind of like a whole fairy tale. He plays me hanging on the telephone. He's, you know, living in this rundown flop house. And so he plays me hanging on the telephone. And I just, you know, I go, holy shit. This is this is a, this is a stone cold hit single. And, and so then we start playing together. I'm playing drums with him on a phone book and he's playing me, you know, hanging on the telephone and. And come back and stay and stand back and take a good look on his on his cherry sunburst Rick and Bucker talk. And I go, you know, this is it, man. This is it. Next week, we will be number one. You know, maybe maybe even sooner, <laughs> but at least by next week. So I'm going like, you know, this is it. And, you know, I mean, I mean, it was serious. I mean, I was sitting there going, listen, I've been listening to rock 
pop music on the radio for, for whatever, five years or whatever, I know a hit when I hear one. I, this is it. We're done. Once once people hear this shit, we're out of here. So, and then, of course, the ad said, kind of intimated there was a band. And I said, well, where's the rest of the band? And he goes, oh, them, forget about them. We're going to start a new band. And you're like, I'm from New York, so I'm going, wait a minute. But I don't say anything because I don't want to screw this up because these songs are way too good. So I go, okay, well, who's going to be in the band? Then he tells me about Peter. And I little did I know that Peter and Jack had a long history before I ever showed up. Peter was playing on the street as well. He used to follow me around. And I'd always go, well, who's that guy? You know what I mean? One night, I was coming home from my spot. And I turned a quarter and I heard this street musician playing Friday on my mind by the easy beats by himself on a guitar, <laughs> which <laughs> that's that that's that takes some doing. And frankly, I was astonished. And then I heard his voice and I said, I don't know why it just came into my mind. I want to play with that guy. I want to harmonize with that guy. I want to be in a band with that guy. And so it took a lot of talking to though to try to persuade him to form a band. We go to find Peter and he is busking with his friend Danny at the at the wharf. And the wharf is this big plaza right in the marina on the water, you know, where all the seafood places are in San Francisco. And this plaza is filled with street artists. And I, I like, you know, Shields and Yarnell used to work there. There were puppeteers. There were Renaissance guys. There were poets. There were writers. I mean, you know, and but people who were like made their living doing this and they were really good in, in costume and this and that. And so there is Peter and Danny playing acoustic guitars, singing Chuck Berry and Everly Brothers and all these fantastic songs with fantastic harmonies and they were nailing the harmony so we're sitting there going like i'm going like man this guy's the shit you know he's really got it down so you know jack introduces me to peter and peter's very you know standoffish but jack is telling me before we meet peter he says listen now don't say anything about starting the band man just be cool let me do the talking you know peter is you know you got to really know what you're doing with Peter. You can't just blurt it out. You know, he's, you got to, you got to make him think it's his idea or whatever. So I go, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> so the first thing I say, you want to start a band with me and Jack? <laughs> Jack is like, I told you not to do that. And Peter's like looking at me like, yeah, man, you know, who the fuck are you? He said, he said, everybody's starting a band. And then he said, you know, it was like that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm thinking of starting a band myself. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we walk away and I'm like, oh man, that really didn't go too well. And on top of that, I know he's really good. Like he's singing, like he's, you know, Peter's got an amazing voice. So even then, you know, I'm like, oh wow, this guy can really sing. Plus they look cool. Jack and Peter look like the shit, you know, I was like, man, these guys, these guys are gods. So, you know, it was like, it was like finding two older brothers that you adored and looked up to and they could do no wrong as far as you're concerned. With Case eventually being persuaded to join the band as a bassist, the first iteration of the Nerves is formed, which would also include guitarist Pat Stengel, a childhood friend of Lee's from Alaska, who would briefly play with the band. After being reduced to a trio following Stengel's exit, 
the band would begin to develop their distinctive sound. Once we pl actually played together, I think, you know, the, the our harmonies and just the way things clicked and, and the fact that we all have interest in that era of music, you know, the British invasion and garage music, that era, we all had interest in that too. So once we spent time together, you know, every little jam, every little meeting, every little conversation started building on itself. And the next thing you know, we're on a mission because we were all directionalists. We didn't, none of us had a direction at that point. Our only direction was a vague desire to be a rock star like everybody else with a heartbeat. In the beginning, we're sitting in Jack's, uh, you know, tenement, rundown, flop house room uh, with no amps. And Peter's playing a Hoffner bass, exactly like Paul McCartney's. And Jack's got the Sunburst Rickenbacker guitar, and I'm playing drums on a phone book. That was the pinnacle of my musical experience in life. Nothing will ever be as good as that. Two guys, the harmonies, you can hear everything. And you're just like sitting there with goosebumps running up and down your arms, you know, for six hours at a clip. It was just, just incredible. It was, it was unbelievable. And I'm just sitting there going, you know, Jesus Christ. I know when people hear this shit, you know, we're going to make it. We're going to be huge. You know, we're going to be as big as the Beatles. At that point in my life, listening to those songs, I said, this is every bit as good as anything I've ever heard. You know, because I really got a big rush from listening to music. I hear, you know, whatever, you know, Crystal Blue Persuasion or any of those songs. And I would get goosebumps and I would just like kind of lose myself in the music and it would be very orgasmic. And it was like, and I had the same feeling about these songs. I said, there's just no way we can miss it just is not possible. What we did came to us so naturally. There was no, it, it, it was not a, um, you know, we, we didn't sit around going, you can play it like this, you can play it like that, you can play it like this. Jack played his guitar, which if you ever sit down and try to analyze from the recordings what Jack played, you're going to have a tough time doing it because he was a, a very unusual guitar player. He used all kinds of weird chords and phrasings. We needed the drive. So Peter and I was just like, you know, we're going to rock this sucker out, you know, and it was straight eighth notes and the drums and bass became an integral part of like making the whole thing musically uh, interesting and stuff. I don't know. It's just, but it was a very natural thing. We, we didn't really talk about it. We just kind of did it. Finding it difficult to garner any sort of attention in San Francisco, the band would attempt to remedy the situation with a unified look, which would consist of matching suits made by the French fashion brand Yves Saint Laurent. The suits were supposed to do it. Everybody would take notice of us. You know, we had to have a look at this. Couldn't be the black suits with the skinny ties. So the blues guys did that. We saw the Ramones. We, we were secretly jealous of them, but we fucking were not going to wear ripped up jeans and leather jackets. That wasn't our idea of cool. And, you know, what could we do? We tried this. We tried that. We tried this. And then Jack comes in one day and goes, I got it. We're going to get three-piece YSL suits. Now, we don't have a dime, and these suits are like three, four hundred bucks a pop. And, you know, Peter's like, get the fuck out of here. I'm not wearing no fucking suit. And, but, you know, I'm like, well, where are we going to get the money? We'll get it. So somehow we do. I forget how we got it. It was legal, though. I, I know that. 
Yeah, that was my bad idea. The The funny thing about the suits was it, it was all irony. I did it because, to me, because I'd been on my own and left home so early, the idea of teenage rebellion was sort of stupid to me. It was so easy. You know what I mean? I, I, I went through that by the time I was 13. So So making a statement against the older generation and your parents and stuff to me was like, I mean, I had two kids by the time I was 19. So I, I kind of missed that whole teenage rebellion thing. So it was kind of child's play and had been done so well. And for so long, the making the statement against your parents that at that point to me, it was a cliche. I was rebelling against my own generation. I was so bored with the long hair and the fucking, you know, 45 minute solos and all that other shit. And Peter and Paul picked right up on that because they were outcasts too. And that was our experience. We were rejects from our own thing and we're trying to find a place in the world. And, and so the only target that I saw available was pop music and popular culture as it existed at that time. So when the punks were doing the punk look, which had already been a, a sort of established, you know, from the English version and the New York version and whatever, I didn't see any room for us there. Not that we had anything against it, just that was being so well done by everybody else that there wasn't really a way to stand out. But what the suits were, it served a, a purpose for a short time of just really having something that could identify us that was that was definitely different and even different on the weird side. It was funny because it really turned out to be quite a handicap on one level as that it was so different from the Ramones look or the Pistols look or the punk drag that was going on at the time. It was the only thing people talked about. <laughs> you know, oh, it's those guys with the suits. To tell you the truth, it did put us on the map in a very weird way. Basically, people thought we were out of our fucking minds. You know, where'd you get those fucking suits? <laughs> Though they would continue to develop musically the band would struggle to find their place in the San Francisco music scene, once the hub of the country's counterculture movement that would birth a number of notable acts such as the Grateful Dead and Sly and the Family Stone. By the mid-1970s, it was a city with a music scene in transition, just a few years away from the significant punk scene that would begin to emerge within its musical community. There were two bands in San Francisco that were of the new generation of bands, Crime and The Nuns. And neither of them wanted to have anything to do with us, unfortunately. You know, you know it's, the truth of the matter is it wasn't a friendly scene. Okay, we were completely, utterly isolated and in a vacuum. We knew no one, we saw no one, we saw no people our age, it just didn't seem like there were any young people anywhere. We would go out, we'd go down to the deli, we'd buy food, we'd go here, we'd go there, we'd walk on the streets, we'd, you know, raid the Goodwill box to get used clothes to sell, but we never saw anybody really our age. 
we had no friends. We knew no one. So we were completely fucking isolated. To be fair, there wasn't a scene for anybody, except for if you were the tail end of the San Francisco glory days. That's who got the gigs. And then there was Journey. The Bay Area had a whole thing, you know, and its basic thing was trying to capitalize on the last dregs of their heyday. And then on top of that was the disco fucking thing, you know what I mean? So there was no opportunities, there was no venues. You know, we rehearsed, 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 and finally I said, come on, man, we got to play some gigs. And we had like, and an original song, so it was like debatable whether we had enough or not. As time goes on, the nerves became a three-man army against the world. And the captain, or the, the, the commander, was Jack. And the army was always thinking of like, you know, okay, we're going to do this, and then we're going to make it. So every, every project was in it. Once we do this, we will achieve fame. So we couldn't get any gigs in San Francisco. We actually, one of the first shows we did as an original band, we threw uh, all our stuff into Danny was still in the mix. Peter's friend. He had a, he had a super eight, a Buick super eight. It's a tank car. It's massive. It's a massive car. And he had a super eight and he had taken the back seat out. So we get Pete's PV amp, the old, the big one, the big mother. He's got a PV amp. We get the PV amp, we get the drum set, and we get Jack's Fender uh, Twin Reverb in the car. We don't tell Danny what we're doing. We just say, Danny, we need a ride. And he said, where are you going? We're going over to the Omni on 8th Street in San Francisco. We go over there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We walk in unannounced. We bring in the gear unannounced, not without permission. We put it on the stage, and we start playing. Our idea is the minute these people hear us, the six drunks at the bar and the bartender, they're going to be so impressed with us that we will get a a legitimate engagement out of it. But what happens in reality is, I mean, it's like, you know, it's San Francisco. It's three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon or whatever. It's dead quiet. There's six alcoholics nursing their drinks at the bar, you know, wise and old crusty guys. The bartender's reading the paper and these three guys in suits come in, set up their fucking gear, and start playing on ten. Three guys, you know, collapse at the bar. The other three run out of the bar. The bartender puts his he's like, What the hell's going on? And he comes up to the stage, he's waving his hands, he's like, What are you guys doing? Are you fucking crazy? I'm gonna call the cops. <laughs> We said something like, you know, we're, we're putting on a show. He says, no, you're not. Get the hell out of here. Undeterred and hopeful that their next idea would be that which would earn them the recognition they sought, the band decides to self-finance their debut EP. Then it was like, okay, we've done this, we've done that, we've done nothing's working. We're going to make a record, and that's going to make everybody sit up and take notice. No one's done this. Truth is, people were making their own records. They were making 45s, which is why we had to do the EP. We always had to do one better. Now we're going to make four songs. Fuck that two-song shit. We're going to make four songs. With me, the realization started with a few of the bands in Alaska made little singles. So I had the experience of 
how important that little piece of plastic sets you apart from almost everybody else in your thing. I just knew after we got to a certain point that the only thing that was going to get us anywhere else was a wreck. It was so important. And it was less, oh, let's record. It was just we to get us out of the hole we were in and put us in any kind of foothold so that we could continue from that point was putting out our own record. And I learned that from uh, DJ came up there from down south and recorded one of the local bands, and it changed everything for them. And then when I was hitchhiking, I met an older black man. His name was James James. He impressed me with how important it was to put something out no matter how. That was an influence. Sessions for the record take place at Kelly Kwan Studios, located in San Francisco's Chinatown District. I had already recorded Hang on a Telephone a year before that, maybe two years, I think. And I recorded it at a very good studio with, with a budget, thanks to my wife at the time. But by the time that the nurse formed and we were a thing, I didn't have those resources. We were broke. We didn't have much money. There was this little studio there that made money by recording commercials on a real local basis. And uh, we put together enough money to record. I think we recorded all of them in like one day. It was a Chinese recording studio on Union Street in Chinatown called Kelly Kwan's. It was my first time in a recording studio, so I was like, you know, this, it it, it was just incredible. It was a small studio, you know, with all the baffling and it had a vocal booth. And the technicians, the owner and and the engineer were Chinese. I mean, straight up Chinese. And I think they basically service the Chinese community. We, we, we had a thousand bucks, so we went to this Chinese recording studio. It was a 16-track studio, very basic. It wasn't like an amateur setup. They did, you know, commercials for TV and stuff, but it was no all the bells and whistles and this, that, and the other thing. It was it had just the basic stuff, very small time, very small space. It was in some guy's house. We knew we didn't have the budget, to just record luxuriously we knew we had to be extremely rehearsed and so we rehearsed those four songs within an inch of their life because we knew that we didn't have the time so during that day or two we were recording we had rehearsed for six months or maybe a year before that of getting things so tight that when we went in there we had that going for us we didn't do any overdubs, except for, I think, the harmony vocals. And so the, the fucking record's tight, and it's tight because just fucking rehearsal, you know, just brutal rehearsal for a long period of time. And uh, we did it. And I'll tell you something, man. You listen to that record today, and it fucking kicks ass. But without a producer, we just went in there. I don't know what was going on. I'm sure the microphones were your standard, you know, probably Shure's. Maybe they had a Neumann for the vocal. I'm not sure. But um, damn, does that record sound good. And in the end, they made a record. I'm in the phone with this one across the hall. If you don't answer, I'll just ring it up the wall. 
The Nerves EP opens with Lee's Hanging on the Telephone, a song that carries on one of the great traditions of rock and roll by embodying the spirit of young, lovesick desperation. With its combination of melody and an easy-to-memorize lyrical refrain, the track's expertly crafted arrangement of deceptively simple guitar lines weaving around the driving rhythm section creates an experience that upon first listen renders it an instant classic. It's the type of pop song born to be a deep cut. The first song that existed and existed before the nerves were the nerves really because it was first song I ever wrote and it was a pretty good template because that song is I don't say this coming from a personal point of view I'm talking about from a kind of a detached point of view it's a hell of a fucking song everything I knew everything I had everything was put into that song it encompasses so many of the qualities of uh, of a really well written song and its uniqueness has given it a life I mean, come on, I I wrote it in 74. Well, motherfucker, man, that, that's almost 50 years old. You, you know, it's been an evergreen. It's been as much a surprise to me as, as anyone. You know, it, those songs, especially hanging on the t- telephone, they weren't easy to do. There was a straight eighth note, eight, a bass drum pattern which is not easy, you know, you know, for, for however long, two, two minutes and 42 seconds. I've recently gone back to playing drums because where I live now, I have a little rehearsal studio and I have a drum set and piano. So I go down every day and I play a little drums, play a little piano. And I play hanging on the telephone just to kind of see how well I can do it. And it's hard. It's really hard. I was not a very schooled trained musician. I, basically played by ear and by feel and i was self-taught so that third cymbal splash was always a tough one for me because it's syncopated don't leave me hanging on the telephone you know what i mean even now i still have to work at getting that timing right you know our songs were not the kind of songs you'd say well, what are you talking about man what do you mean jack you know he has a whole story about about how he had heard something about the beatles and something and i don't know yeah, there was a thing, the Beatles and, or whoever, Capital, whatever, put out the the first Beatles anthology. Two albums, you know, number one, number two, one was red, one was blue, and it was a collection of all the songs they had to glean from at that point, but what made it distinct is all the lyrics were inside the cover. And that spawned a coffee table book called The Illustrated Beatles. And it was basically the lyrics to the songs that were off these two albums. Each one had a sketch to represent the song. My all-time favorite Beatles song was All I Gotta Do. You know, All I gotta do is call you on the phone, blah, blah, blah. So when I saw that, there was a little sketch above it. And it was kind of weird because it was a... It was like a little cartoon of a girl and, you know, the old style phones with the coil cord and everything. And it was wrapped around her neck. There was no deep psychological thing or anything to it. It was just 
an image that because this was attached to my favorite song that i was really interested in seeing the lyrics because by the way that's how i learned how to write songs prior to the time when i came down from alaska and hitchcock and then start playing on the street i was a supporting musician had never sung before and i always played bass so i never paid attention to lyrics i never really paid attention to songs all that much it was just as long as i knew my part you know that was my thing so i wasn't into narrative i loved good songs but i didn't know how to do it and i never really paid particular attention to how it was done so when I decided that I wanted to be a songwriter, that was my thing, man. I just wanted to write one fucking song. And so the way I had taught myself how to write a song was because the lyrics for all these Beatles songs that I was familiar with was laid out by looking at it. You could see the structures. I saw how to do it. It made sense to me. So anyway, back to the illustrated Beatles. At the time, I was desperate to write my first song. Desperate for one year. And I just couldn't make headway. An important lesson about songs is realizing the secret that a song writes itself. If you let it. If you let a song tell you what it wants to be, that's what it's all about is getting out of the way of what the song's telling you it needs to be what it wants to be this is the absolute core secret of songwriting and so when i you know was obsessing about coming up with anything anything would have done just anything original it started out as a prank call concept so i'm sitting there grunting and slapping and you know how you do you just do the same thing over and over and over again that the song was starting to form but what the miracle was was looking through this beatles book again and i looked at the picture and just out of nowhere in my crossed my mind was the phrase hanging on the telephone a literal description of the cartoon I didn't have no concept behind it. I, it was just the phrase hanging on the telephone, just stuck in my mind, title-wise. Minutes after that phrase, and I just came out, I'm in the phone booth, so I don't know where the fuck it came from. And But it just came out. Just learned by the miracle of uh, letting an idea float through you without trying to to pound it into some sort of shape of just letting it flow and it takes a lot of discipline because your first instinct is to structure something but i didn't do that too soon i just let it i just let it flow and so once i had the phrase don't leave me hanging on the top once i had that boom i knew i had a really strong chorus and then I went back to that first thing of I'm in the phone booth. And I just basically in the spirit of Chuck Berry, who's the master of story songs, I just sort of imitated his thing of making a story out of it. Then I decided to put everything I had ever known about songs, bridge, strong chorus, lifting bridge, uh, strong narrative. I just made it a goal to put everything 
that I knew about a song into that one song. I tried to explain, but you don't see. No one can give you more love than me. You say you're waiting for just the right one. You'll try to find me when he lets you down. When you find out I was the one. When you find out I was the one. With this metronomic surf-like beat and an urgent, uncomplicated chord sequence, the well-constructed and timeless-sounding pop song, When You Find Out, lyrically evokes the shared hope of all spurned lovers and shows bassist Peter Case not only shining as a vocalist, but also as a songwriter, further adding to the legend of this band. Peter and Paul, they didn't see themselves just as a drummer, just as a bass player, because Peter got a fucking amazing voice. He had a great style. He could have formed his own band and played guitar and formed around his songs, but at that time he wasn't a songwriter. He was two inches from becoming a songwriter. He had the interest and he had the chops and he had a few ideas and this, that, the other thing. But at that point, he had never really written a finished song. And Paul wasn't just a drummer, but that's what made the nerves as strong as we were. That combined strength and all that concentration into one band served us well. And so I was in full songwriting bore. I was starting to write some songs. And that was all we talked about. It was all about the songs. They, you know what I mean? They had that desire. So when we decided to make a record, you know, Peter had an idea. He was so close to a songwriter that had some experience and had some skills that he just, you know, by observation, quickly picked up on the things he needed to do to put his song together. We quickly picked up on the thing that this wasn't just going to be about Jack Lee songs. We were going to be a band of songwriters, not a band of one songwriter's songs. That wasn't the goal. The goal was for us to sort of make a united front and each contribute songs. The nerves were sort of like a songwriting school. And out of it, that was our school project. You know, we were making a record. We wanted to each have a contribution. And and they're solid fucking songs, man. When you found out just have some smoking pop, 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 the standard, you know, pop rock beat, you know, with the double double hit on the snare on the four. Very proud of that track. And the sound that we got, which is just a miracle. To me, at that time and still today, the recordings are the holy grail. That's the one thing you do. It's like going to church and it's going to go out on the on its own and it's going to do its own thing in the world. It's going to leave you and it's just going to go on its way like that record did and like records do. You're praying to God you're making something that will do that, that will stand up on its own and, and you know, be in the rest of the world of records that you love, that you really revere and that you think, you know, that's it. That's when you really got to get it. You got to lay it down. It's got to be in the tracks. It's got to be on the wax. So, you know, in hindsight, you know, we, we were able to do that. But at the time, you know, obviously we didn't know. We were hoping. But then listening 
in the in the little control room. It's a small 16-track studio. But it was, you know, for me, it, it, it was like, you know, uh, Abbey Road. I mean, had all the burlap baffles on the walls and the smell of the whole thing and the lights, the red lights and the, the, the meters and listening to Peter Cut when you find out being in the control room and just hearing the voice. I mean, the guy's a great singer. And Jack's a great singer, too, but Peter's really a great singer. You know, I love the way Jack sounds, but, you know, Peter's got the kind of voice where you sit there and you go, oh, my God, this guy's just killing it. Just a word between us, and now you want to go home. You've given up on me now, so I'll be here on my own. Can you wait, say, baby, you will, say that you won't go, say you'll give me some time. Can you wait, say, baby, you will, say that you won't go, say you'll give me some time. Won't you give me some time? Through its blend of tight harmonies and jangly guitar, the track Give Me Some Time, which opens up side B, imagines a world in which the birds were a power trio. I always loved the Roger McGrant 12-string sound, and that's exactly what I was going for. That's about all there is to say about that song, is that's exactly what the intention was. I wish I would have wrote three distinct verses, except for just repeating the one verse, because I, I hadn't written the other two yet, so I didn't have a classic narrative thing. But that's what we had at the time, so that's what we used. It's the same verse three times in a row. So, give me some time. It's not one of my best songs, but it's, it's okay, but it wasn't quite finished. And sort of ended up on there just because it was together enough to have a song. Uh, Give Me Some Time is great because I use mallets and it has a real timp sound to it. And I, I was pretty proud of that. Yeah, I was lucky. I sing on that too. I did the third harmonies on Hanging on the Telephone with When You Find Out and, um, and Give Me Some Time. It's all three part harmonies. When you get people that are in tune singing together, it's just magic. It's just magic. It's like. I don't know, the, the, the Bee Gees or, or Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young or the Beatles, whatever. That thing that happens when the voices are really tuned in and people know what they're doing and they, or they're getting it right, it just kills you. You know, it's just so damn good. And we have that. It's in these little infinitesimal things. You know, you can't really put your finger on it. It's just, you know, we never sat around and talked about it. I mean, I learned a lot from them. I had a terrible pitch problem. So, you know, they would work with me to get me to sing in key. And, and I was just learning all this stuff. I was, you know, I was 18. But man, it was really good. record ends with a Collins composition, Working Too Hard, a solid piece of songcraft that does a lot with very little. 
through its straightforward arrangement of guitar, bass, and drums. The band sets up a mechanical-like groove, creating the perfect backdrop in which the group, for these final moments of the EP, can once again display their well-honed vocal harmony skills. It's a nice conclusion to the record, and made all the more fitting considering that the EP starts with the first song that Lee ever wrote, and ends with the first song that Collins ever wrote. So when I see Jack Lee, he plays me hanging on the telephone, which, you know, again, just blows my mind. And then I hear Peter Case, and he's playing me When You Find Out and all that stuff. And I'm going, I got to write songs. I'm not getting left out of this one. You know, because here's these two guys that now I'm playing with them, and they write songs. So, God damn it, I'm going to write songs. So for two years, that's all I did was I'd wake up every morning when I had an old beat-up guitar, and I would just, I, I would beat the beat-up guitar, and I would just beat it into submission, and finally, uh, my first two songs were You Won't Be Happy and uh, Working Too Hard, and from there, I just, uh, you know, I just kept going, but I was very lucky, because those two guys, you couldn't have picked two better guys to kind of, like, mentor you in songwriting, because especially Jack, I mean, Jack was you know, he loved music and he wasn't messing around and he had an extremely, extremely high criteria. So it's like, you know, if you could get it past him, you really had something. And I wasn't sure if it came out as good as the other songs and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, again, testament to Jack and how I learned so much from him and then just his whole way of being was, you know, he was... He, he, you know, there are a lot of guys like, you know, I want to make sure my song's great and I don't give a, I don't really care what happens to me. You know, the rest of the songs, fuck those guys, you know, whatever. He was like, you know, we got to make, he loved the song and he said, we got to really make this special. And so he ha- came up with this idea that we would start the song. I'll never forget. He said, we got to get a ball peen hammer and we got to hit that metal base of the mic stand to get that sound. Thank God it wasn't a cowbell. You know, it was a ball peen hammer on that. You know, those mic, how those mic stands back in the day had those big, thick, fucking heavy metal round thing. Gray. They were always gray. And so and so we record that. And that's why it has that really. You know, great machine type sound of working. And so we record it. And, you know, of course, we're just using straight up reverb, whatever they have. And it's great. And um so we were going to mix the record down. We're mixing or we're mixing down, working too hard. And we get it, get done. And we said, okay, play it back. And we, we play, he plays it back. I go, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's what happened? And the guy goes, oh, that? I thought that was the count off, man. I cut that off. It's in the garbage can over there. So thank God we were working with tape because it literally was in the garbage can. So we fish out the tape and he splices it back on. But yeah, it was, it was great. So after, after we got the final mixes, um, I guess we were in the studio maybe two days. Um, it was when um, the movie The Exorcist came out. And so there were theaters in downtown San Francisco where you could get in for a buck and you could basically stay as long as you wanted. So we got a bag of weed and we go in there and we see the exorcist maybe like six times in a row while we're smoking the weed. 
And that was, that was our celebration for recording the uh, 45. Following the record's completion and subsequent celebration at the movie theater, the band goes about getting the record pressed, as well as figuring out how to promote it. Having felt that their time in San Francisco had run its course, shortly after self-releasing the record in the fall of 76, the band decides to relocate to Los Angeles. We had come to the end of the line in San Francisco. Jack got stabbed, and we were like, we got to get the hell out of here. That was during that recording that we had done the instrumental pass on those songs, but the vocals weren't added yet. And the next day is when it happened. Right the day before I was to add my vocal to hang on the telephone is when this incident happened. We were trying to find some place to live and rehearse, and we found this old funky building right next to a bridge downtown by the bus station, downtown San Francisco on Folsom Street. It had six units and a basement. So we said, oh, we'll each take a unit, and we'll have the basement to rehearse in, and when we'll rent the other three units out, and we'll, and we'll jack up the price on those three to cover basically most of the rent, and we'll just have to kick in a little each. So that was our foray into the world of real estate. And one of the people that we rented, I don't know if we rented to him or he had already been living there, was an older man who was a World War II vet and he was on heavy duty medication. And one night when we went to collect the rent, he was under the impression that he had already paid us. So he opens the door with a kitchen knife and he stabs Jack in the chest. So that was it. So we said, we got to get the hell out of here. In fact, when we left San Francisco, it was like, we are never coming back to this fucking town again. I don't care. Of course we did, but we, we, we really hated it at that point. It just, it did not represent all the things it was famous for were keeping us down. We weren't hippies. We hated hippies. We hated fucking the Doobie Brothers and Santana and all that shit. You know, we just couldn't stand it. I mean, our mind wasn't there anymore. You know what I mean? Our, our only thought was, let's get down to Los Angeles. Our bodies were in San Francisco, but our hearts and minds was already going to Hollywood. And when I recovered from the stabbing incident, uh, I added my vocal. They added their vocals. We mixed it. And then uh, we sent away to have it made into a record. I still have the bill of lading from the uh, from the manufacturing company. You know, Jack had all that. You know, we're going to press it up in Waco. Waco. We pressed it up in Waco, Texas. And um, I remember, you know, the font was Helvetica. Fire engine red Helvetica. <laughs> you know, and, and I was like, Helvetica. Wow. How do you even know that shit? You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, a lot of that stuff, Jack just seem to know about and um and then you know the day comes we get we get all the parts you know we get the 45 i think we get 2000 or 1000 i forget maybe a thousand in white sleeves and then we get the the actual sleeve which we you know we we've done the photo session we got the whole thing worked up we sent back and then we get the little mailers you know again you know i were like how how are we going to let people know about this i'll tell you how we're going to let people know we're going to take an ad out a classified ad in Rolling Stone, baby. At that time, in the back of the Rolling Stone, there was a classified section. 
So we scrambled up a little bit of money to put a one-inch ad in the back of the classified section. And the key thing that got us to L.A. happened. So we start getting orders, 250 plus postage or something like that. And people like Alan Betrock and Gene Scalati and all these guys are out there go, yeah, fuck that. I got to have this. So we were surprised, you know. But then uh, Greg Shaw really, really moved things along because he said, look, I'll buy another 800 copies and I'll pay you cash. Greg Shaw, dear, dear Greg Shaw, he wrote us a letter and said, hey, I want you to come down to L.A. And he was connected with Rodney Bingenheimer, who had the only one-hour shows every Sunday night of this kind of music, which started the careers of everybody from Blondie to Tom Petty to on and on. At that point, the Runaways were no longer a group, but Joan Jett was still left standing. And our invitation was to open up for Joan Jett's new band at this place called Osco's. This was our big break, man. So we go down there, not just to play this gig. We packed up and we moved. We were done. And and so we get there. We get up on stage. First gig in L.A., opening up for Joan Jett. It's kind of a big deal. We start smelling smoke. We start seeing smoke come into the venue. Well, we all know at this point how bad a nightclub fire can be. So the place filled up with smoke. And people started running for the exits and that, this, that, the other thing. And we went down into our dressing room down in the basement and got locked in our dressing room while everybody was escaping the fire upstairs. And had the fire department not gone down in the basement and chopped down that door, we wouldn't have been around. Needless to say, we missed our most important gig. The whole reason we came down, because the place got on fire. So it was a pretty rocky start to our beginnings in L.A. After settling in Los Angeles and finding the local scene as difficult to penetrate as the one they had just left, the band, once again needing to create their own opportunities, comes up with the idea of doing a nationwide tour. Beginning in May of 1977, the tour would take the band all over the U.S., as well as a stop in Canada, and include a string of dates playing with the Ramones. Following their last show of the tour in Bellevue, Illinois, the band would make their way back to Los Angeles. Upon returning, they would eventually enter a Hollywood studio to record the tracks One Way Ticket and Paper Dolls. But the years of near-constant struggle for opportunity and recognition had begun to take its toll. After we came back from what can only describe this brutal fucking tour in 77. Brutal. Not in terms of the experience, because it was a wonderful experience, but just because nobody had ever done it before without record company support. So it was the first indie fan tour nationally. People had been doing this regionally, but never nationally. And that took so much out of us. We get back... We still cannot get anywhere. We can't get any industry acceptance at all. We can't get a manager. We can't get a, a producer. We can't get a label. We can't, you know, we just basically done everything humanly possible. We were at the point where 
where Greg Shaw wanted to put out a record that he wanted to put out an album. And by that time, Paul and Peter were starting to write some good songs. And so it became a real touchy negotiation of whose songs were going to be on the album, which songs were going to be on the album and everything else like that. And I was sort of the elder of the groups. And I was married. I had two kids. I was in a different phase of life. I was in my late 20s at that point. So after all that tour and coming back and seeing the hard road ahead of us, we were starting to fight. And I just saw the future for a minute. I had a glimpse of the future. And I was sort of jaded, a little bit cynical, a little bit uh, over it. You know what I mean? Facing a lot of pressure from having... Uh, we were on food stamps. We were, you know, we were living poverty level with two children. And, and I just thought from this point forward, this is going to be a fight for the rest of our career of recognition. And I'm not saying this was right. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying my feeling at the time was it was time for everybody to go their own way so that they could have their moment in the sun. It, it would be different if that's all they wanted to be was a drummer and a bass player. But that was never the case from the very beginning. And and now they were writing solid songs. And I just saw a future in front of us where it was going to be one of these classic things of, of uh, fighting for who's recognized. Everybody had the ability to be recognized in their own right. But if things continued along those lines, it was going to be a battle. And I didn't want to do that. I remember Jack has a meeting at his house and he says, listen, man, I got the song that's going to put us across now. It's going to put us over. And we'll go, yeah, what's that? And he goes, sex. He has this song called sex. Sex! What everybody in them? And we're going, like, oh, come on, man. This is like, you know, we're not buying it at all. And so Peter and I leave and we're kind of like, well, I guess that's it, man. With me, Jack had lorded over me because I was like the I was like the baby brother. I would do you know whatever he's bidding, and Peter was like, "I'm I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm done. This is it. It's P.S. I'm out of here." And so, kind of like, there's no contact for a while. You know, bear in mind, there's no cell phones or anything. If you want to call somebody, you got to pick up the phone and call, and they have to be wherever that phone is. <laughs> Just, yeah. So. Uh, we kind of just like, I don't know, there's some dead time or downtime. And then the next thing I know, this guy that had worked with us as a manager in a roadie, Ron Camacho, who lived in L.A. and subsequently wound up being kind of like the road manager slash manager for the Plimsolls. All of a sudden, Ron's coming around. Hey, man, Blondie's trying to find Jack. You know where Jack is? Chrysalis wants to find Jack. We go, what? Blondie wants to find Jack? Chrysalis wants to find Jack? What the fuck is up with that shit? Jeffrey Lee Pierce, that later had a group called the Gun Club, who met a tragic ending, him personally. At the time, he was one of our first fans. And he was the president of the Blondie fan club. He, he had made a mixtape of various groups that, you know, of the burgeoning indie scene. And he had made a cassette and sent it to Blondie, which has sort of gotten mixed in with their probably mountain of tape from other people. Not so a total random thing of they had gotten their first 
important gig in Japan. This is when they had gotten signed by Chrysalis. They were no longer just that band from New York. They were getting traction. But they had gone on their first tour to Japan. And the limo driver somehow had this cassette in the front seat of his car and they were all bored sitting around and and nobody asked him he just put in this cassette and it happened to have hanging the telephone on it when they heard it they loved the song and then they recorded it i didn't even know about it. they recorded it and then asked if they could do it and then the next thing you know i hear it i was driving in the car i almost actually got into an accident on sunset boulevard the band is kind of broken up and i'm going oh man you know, now, now something's going to happen, you know, and then I'm going, all right, well, we got to get back together again, man. This is big shit. Blondie's covered hanging on the telephone. This is our big break. And then Jack just goes completely AWOL. And we don't know or hear anything about him. I think he went to New York and he was hanging out with Blondie and then he was doing this and then he was doing that and it was all over. And that was it. Following the band's breakup, Case and Collins would briefly form the band The Breakaways, which would eventually include musicians Steve Huff and Mike Ruiz. When Case exits the band near the end of 78 to form the Plum Souls, with which he would find some success, the remaining members of The Breakaways would form The Beat, and in time, would sign a major label deal with Columbia Records. Lee would find most of his post-nerve success as a songwriter. Hanging on the telephone, as well as his Will Anything Happen, would appear on Blondie's massively successful third album, Parallel Lines, and English singer Paul Young would record three of Lee's songs for his 1983 debut record, including former Nerve's number, Come Back and Stay, which would go on to become an international hit. Lee would also release two solo albums during the 80s, one of which, 1981's Jack Lee's Greatest Hits Volume 1, would include his former bandmates on some of the tracks. In the ensuing years, the legend of the nerves would steadily grow. In 2008, Alive Natural Sound Records would release One Way Ticket, a compilation of the band's studio recordings, as well as demos and live tracks ensuring that the legacy of this band will continue to reach the uninitiated. And as for Collins and Lee's feelings on this legacy, the two former bandmates are proud, especially with some hindsight, of what they were able to create and accomplish together. I mean, I am proud as the Dickens, and and I, I at least feel somewhat... Um, I don't know what the right word is, uh, not vindicated, but I feel like, you know, the band did get to see the light of the day and quality will out and you do something good and something will come of it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, come on. I'm a musician. I can say, yeah, I was in the nerves. Oh, oh shit, man. You know, who were they? No, <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? So uh, I'm proud of what we did and it's a great pedigree. You know, I was 18 when I met those guys. It was my boot camp. I don't think anything has happened to me since that didn't happen in that band. For me, it was my band. It was like being in the Beatles. I wanted to be in the Beatles. 
It was one for all and all for one for a limited amount of time in, in that moment. And that was the truest sense of being in a band that I ever had. The beat was a great band too, but it wasn't, it wasn't structured like that. The beat was more me and Steve. And then we picked up Larry and the beat was more like the stones, you know, it was Mick and Keith. And then they picked up Bill and they picked up Charlie. So for me, the nerves was the nerves was the real deal. Now, you know, now the fact that I was able to be in the nerves and then be in the beat, that's a lot of gravy. It's a lot of gravy. We were more than a band. I think the band is the only opportunity I ever had to have a family because of my childhood and this, that, and the other thing. And to this day, it was the only experience I ever had, if anything like that. And it was a wonderful experience. It was so rich in that respect, in terms of, I mean, man, we lived, breathed, slept, dreamed as a unit on a level it's not really comparable. I'm just surprised that there's anybody after we broke up from that point till now that was even interested in it. And there's a certain fondness that I, I pick up on with people about it. They got it. And people that didn't have anything connected with it in terms of time, you know, young people and people of all ages and all styles how they found us and their fondness for it has been a surprise and from a narcissistic point of view i was obsessed we were all obsessed with making it and doing the whole rock star thing i was so obsessed with that to the point of absurdity if i look back on it and i look at what i actually experienced in my mind Anything less than being John Lennon was a letdown. I, however, now, at 69 years old, and I look back on it, shit, man. I was lucky, so, so, so fortunate to be able to have the experiences that I did and what modest success that I did have with it. I, I feel so blessed that I even got a taste, the taste that I got, you know? Thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. Very special thanks to Paul Collins and Jack Lee for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy One Way Ticket, which includes the four songs from the EP and is essential listening on the various streaming platforms or at alive-records.com. Also, if you want to hear the whole story and more from Collins, I highly, highly recommend his memoir, I Don't Fit In, which you can purchase through hozakrecords.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at lovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.